0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Encouragement Expert podcast. We're glad you're joining us today. Let's join Pastor Wes Doffenbaugh as he gives us an encouraging word titled, The Delight of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. It's a true delight to be with each one of you today. I love you. God bless you in Jesus' name. Let's say a prayer because we have a wonderful message. Our Father, we pray you'll glorify your name, draw us all close to Jesus Christ and change us into his image. Use this message for that end, and we vow to give you the glory in Jesus' name, amen. All right, the message is called The Delight of Jesus Christ. Now the book of Isaiah is a wonderful book, sometimes called The Fifth Gospel, because there's so much in it about Jesus Christ. So it's like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, except it's in the Old Testament. And uh, the prophet Isaiah was just shown so much about the coming Messiah. You should get familiar with Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 3 because this says that uh, the Messiah would come through the line of David. And then it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So there's seven... uh, manifestations of the Holy Spirit, and uh, they're not seven different personalities, but seven different manifestations, so the Spirit of the Lord is the first one. There's the Spirit of Wisdom, the Spirit of Understanding, the Spirit of Counsel, the Spirit of Power or Might, the Spirit of Knowledge, and the seventh is the Spirit of the Fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit in these seven manifestations rested on Jesus. And uh, because that's what it says uh, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And then it gives the full description of those seven spirits. Now, uh, John the Baptist, you know, when he uh, saw Jesus, he said, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Well, one of these seven manifestations of the Holy Spirit is the fear of the Lord. And something special is said about this seventh one. It says, and he, meaning Jesus, will delight in the fear of the Lord. That's Isaiah eleven three. 3. One aspect of the fear of the Lord is an absolute love of obedience to the Father. It's a delight in obeying and honoring God. And Jesus just delighted in obeying the Father. He obeyed to the point of death on a cross. Now, disobedience to the Father's will was just unthinkable to him. And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. John 5:19. So to a person who fears the Lord, disobedience is unthinkable, it's not an option. But pleasing God is a true delight. Now, because the word fear is in, in there, the fear of the Lord, a lot of people relate that to devilish, demonic fear. And the Bible says we don't. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Well, the fear of the Lord is not removed in the New Testament. Uh, because it's a pure thing. It's a, it's a virtue. It's, it's wonderful, and it drives away every other fear. So the fear of the Lord didn't drive Jesus insane. It didn't make him live in fear of judgments the way demons fear. You know, lost people, evil people, and evil spirits are already condemned, and so they live in fear. They fear judgment, and this fear makes them run away from God But the fear of the Lord keeps one from evil, so that those upon whom this spirit rests always run to God. And uh, even if we have a sin problem, we don't run away. We run to him and ask forgiveness and get cleansed. So these people delight in reverencing, honoring, obeying, and thanking God. And they, hopefully as we, share in the very delight of Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you, would you like to have a delightful life? Well, just because you have a big house, big car, big reputation, lots of money, doesn't mean your life is delightful uh, because true delight is in the spirit and it comes from intimate fellowship with God. So. If you'd like a really delightful life, learn everything you can about the fear of the Lord so that the very delight of Jesus Christ becomes your delight. Now listen, I'm going to say something. (laughs) There's no greater joy, there's no greater delight than that of Jesus Christ. If he delights, if the Bible says his delight is in the fear of the Lord, then that means there is no greater delight anywhere. That's the ultimate the one who truly fears the Lord, see, is never going to experience the terror of the unsaved and ungodly. The Bible says someday they'll cry to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand, Revelation 6, 16. Now, God's ultimate purpose is to have a great big family of just like Jesus' people. God will conform us to the image of Jesus if we'll cooperate with that and desire it. So we want to do more than just get to heaven. We, and we should pray, don't just make me more like Jesus, but always pray, Lord, make me just like Jesus. Now in order to be conformed to Christ's image, we must live with the spirit of the fear of the Lord resting on us while we delight in the fear of the Lord. And Jesus delighted in being anointed with the spirit of the fear of the Lord. But he also delights in believers who truly fear the Lord and they become his delight, his intimate friends. Well, that's my introduction. Here's my first point. The fear of the Lord results in friendship and intimacy with the Father. The Bible says, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And and he answered, here I am. And God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I'll tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning. Evidently, God spoke to him in the middle of the night. But he arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two young men with him, and Isaac, his son, he split wood for a burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And then he left the two servants and he took Isaac and went up to the mountain, prepared an altar, tied his little boy to it, raised the knife to slay his son, and then the, to slay his son. And then the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And uh, the Lord said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me." Now I noticed that the the Lord didn't say, now I know you love God. He said, now I know you fear God. And God is not embarrassed to use the word fear when it comes to fearing God. It's a good thing. It's a good fear. It destroys all other fears and is in fact a virtue, but it's more than a virtue. It's one of the seven manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Later, you know, centuries later, the Apostle James wrote in the New Testament, don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? He was even called the friend of God, James chapter 2. Now, Abraham's obedience had five factors, and the reason we're calling attention to it is because God said, now I know you fear God. So, Let's look at these five factors. Abraham obeyed immediately. He didn't say, well, let me think about it for two weeks. He got up. If God spoke to him in the night, then the very next early morning, he got up as soon as he could and uh, started obeying. And then he obeyed even though it didn't make any sense because God had told him, I'm going to make your descendants like the sand of the sea, and they're going to come through Isaac. And then God's telling him to sacrifice him. Well, that didn't make any sense, but he obeyed anyway. And he obeyed even though it had no apparent benefit. What benefit could it be to slay your son? And then he obeyed even though it was very painful to carry out. And finally, then verse uh, number five, he obeyed all the way to the end, completely obeying. He didn't partially obey. Because you see, God had called to him at the beginning, Abraham, at the beginning of the road to obedience, And Abraham said, here I am. And then God called again at the end of the road of obedience. And Abraham was there again and said, here I am. Now, many people, uh, you know, who are called by God, God calls them and they'll say, here I am at the beginning of obedience. But then when God calls them at the end of the trail of obedience, they aren't there. (laughs) So they can't say, here I am at the completion of obedience. Now, once I wrote a a chorus based on this, I've never recorded it, but it's been in my heart. So I sing this to the Lord. Whenever I call, you call me Lord, I always will say, here I am, your will to obey, no matter how hard it seems. No matter how long it takes, at journey's end, I'll say, Lord, here I am. Well, I also wrote a song one time called, I Like Obeying You. And uh, it goes, one of the verses, goes, I like obeying you. That feeling's running in my veins. I like obeying you. And I am one of those who reigns in life through Jesus and I'll do whatever he may say. Lord, come what may, I like obeying you. Well, now some things that God commands us to do uh, requires continual obedience. And so when he said, go offer your son, that was a one-time deal. But God also said, rejoice always Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, some commands require obedience that refrains from certain things, like do everything without complaining and disputing. Philippians 2. And some translations say do everything without grumbling and arguing. Well, So a sixth uh, aspect of obedience would be to obey continually if it's one of those things that we're supposed to rejoice always or do everything without complaining. And then a seventh aspect of this kind of obedience would be to always rely on the Holy Spirit's enablement because you see if we don't do that how are you going to do everything without complaining how are you going to rejoice always if God isn't helping you so you can't uh, you can't be this have this kind of obedience unless you're really relying on God to help you now Jesus said to his disciples you are my friends if you do what I command you and Friendships can be at different levels, and and not all friends are equal. Some people are best friends or lifelong friends. Not all believers are careful to obey God in all things, and, and not all believers even think about obeying God in all things. But some believers truly fear God, and they show this holy fear by a sevenfold obedience. Here it is again. They obey immediately. They obey even if it doesn't make sense. They obey even if there's no apparent benefit. Uh, They obey even if it costs them something. They obey completely. They uh, continually obey. And then uh, they humbly rely on the Holy Spirit to help them obey. Now, my second point is God does not delight in those who don't fear him. And let's go back just a minute. I hope that all of you would like to be a friend of God like Abraham. But see, we can't just sing that song, I am a friend of God, I am a friend of God, I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. Well, that's a popular Christian chorus. When every time I hear people sing it, I think, well, I don't think you know what you're singing. Because most of the people singing it don't obey this way. So... This intimate friendship with God is available to us all, but we've got to really love obedience. And, and that moves us into a, a friendship that's not just casual, but an awesome friendship with God. Now my second point, God doesn't delight in those who don't fear him. So in uh, 1 Samuel, it tells about Eli, who was a high priest. He didn't discipline his sons and they were very godless and he allowed them to remain priests. They were committing fornication with the women who served right in front of the holy tabernacle of the Lord, and they despised the offerings that were brought to God and uh, treated the people that were making the offerings in a very irreverent way and put themselves ahead of God even, and they took their portion before God's portion was given of the sacrifices, and uh, so God said to Eli, Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go, on, should go in and out before me forever. But now declares the Lord, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. That's the ESV. The NIV translation says, Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be disdained. Another translation says, Those who despise me will be considered insignificant. Well, the rest of that word to Eli was that his two disobedient sons would die in one day. And that was quickly fulfilled when, in a battle, they requested that they bring the Ark of God in to help them. And then 30,000 Israelites were killed in the battle. The two sons of Eli died. The Ark of God was actually captured for a while. Now, and God told him through the prophet Samuel to take vengeance on the Amalekites who were wicked Canaanites and they had blocked Israel's way when they came up out of Egypt. So Samuel prophesied, this is what the Lord of armies says. I will punish Amalek for what they did to Israel. They blocked Israel's way after the Israelites came from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek. Claim everything they have for God by destroying it. Don't spare them, but kill men and women, infants and children, cows and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, Saul went to battle with about 200,000 troops, and he wiped the Amalekites out. But he spared the king because he wanted to show him off as a trophy of war, kind of a way to glorify himself. And then his army rebelled against killing all those animals that were healthy because they were worth a lot of money. So they destroyed all the sick and weak ones, but they kept the best. And their excuse was that they were going to sacrifice them to the Lord. But that meant they were going to save their own money and not have to sacrifice one animal of their own. And uh, so they they didn't obey. Now, uh, when Samuel came and met Saul after the battle. Saul announced, he said, I've obeyed God. I went to the battle. I destroyed the Amalekites. But Samuel wasn't impressed at all. He, he said, well, then what's all this bleeding and lowing of cattle and bleeding of sheep? And and, uh, and Saul just kept right, I did obey God. Uh, we destroyed the Amalekites. I kept the king alive, you know, for a trophy here. and uh, And the people kept the best of the animals to sacrifice to the Lord. But Samuel... Really lit into him and and told him that uh, does God desire sacrifice or obedience? And uh, he said, "This what you have done is a disobedience that's the same as rebellion, and it's like the sin of witchcraft." Well, he in other words, this incomplete obedience where you obey part of God and don't obey the other part, that didn't that didn't fly with God, <laughs> and. Right after that, the Lord told Samuel, I'm grieved that I have made Saul the king. Now, Saul had admitted to Samuel, well, finally, he said, all right, I admit I sinned. I feared the people. See, the people didn't want to kill all the Amalekite animals. They wanted to keep the plunder. So he said, I feared the people. Well, then that means he didn't fear God, and that's what got him into such big trouble. But you know the sad thing is the Bible says the Lord removed his spirit from Saul after that and an evil spirit tormented Saul from then on. Now we should have a holy and reverent fear of God that just rules out disobedience and doesn't consider incomplete obedience to be an option. And we should delight in obeying God and ask for God's help to live in the fear of the Lord so that our obedience is most pleasing to God and we move into true intimacy with God and friendship with God, such as Abraham experienced. And of course, Abraham had an awesome, awesome relationship with God, friendship, where the Lord would come and talk to him. Now, the third point, false grace has replaced the fear of God in many believers. The devil likes to redefine terms. He likes to redefine what it means, what salvation means. And he's done a very effective job at redefining grace. Now, before the Protestant Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church used to sell indulgences to raise money for building great cathedrals. And an indulgence gave you permission to sin a certain sin. It's like you bought the right from God to sin, only you bought it from the corrupt church. (laughs) So, So for a certain amount of money, you could buy an indulgence that permitted you to commit adultery people that were trusting that were trusting in a false grace well indulgences have been done away with a long time ago but we have a modern version of that which is a belief that quote since we didn't do anything to earn salvation we can't do anything to lose it unquote now actually we do two things to be saved number 1 we've got to repent of our sins And secondly, we've got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we do something. And then there's two things that we can do to lose our salvation and they're the opposite of repenting and believing. Rebellion is unrepented, willful sin practiced over and over and embraced as normal. And that moves us out from under the blood of Jesus. It's the opposite of repentance and it can cause you to lose out completely with God. Idolatry is the opposite of saving faith because it switches gods. It switches over to a false god. Paul told the Corinthians that they were believing in a, in a different Jesus. Well, uh, you know, a, a lot of people have a Jesus that they created in their mind and uh, not the true real deal. <laughs> now, Jesus said, listen to this. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now that's Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. And I call this group of people the preachers in hell because I believe they were preachers. They drove out demons, they prophesied, they performed many miracles. That doesn't sound like the nominal church goer to me. It sounds like somebody that was once anointed by God who was a spiritual leader. Now, when Jesus said, I never knew you, a lot of people think, well, that means these guys were never saved, but I don't see it that way. Because the Bible tells us that if we turn from righteousness, God can completely forget all that we did previously for him. And he explained it to Ezekiel. And he said, when a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before them, they will die. Since you did not warn them, they will die in their sin. The righteous things that person did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin and they do not sin, they will surely live because they took warning and you will have saved yourself. Well, what a a big responsibility it is to uh, warn people. And that's Ezekiel chapter 3. So, I believe the many that Jesus spoke of began to think that they had an exemption from obedience as if their former righteous deeds gave them indulgences. They were trusting in a false grace and basically a false Jesus. Now, folks, remember this. Real grace empowers. It's always connected with the word power. And uh, so I call uh, the false grace lazy grace and the real grace amazing grace. But real grace, amazing grace, is always connected with spiritual power, and Here's it, gives what I you, found. it gives you power to avoid sin and, uh, and power to live righteously and holy before God. So I would say to you, whatever you do, do not join the preachers in hell. All right, now God said to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Notice grace is connected to power. Grace actually means the manifested power of God. Now Paul wrote again, listen to this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, doesn't give us an excuse, uh, an exemption so that we can live uncontrolled lives down in the dirt with worldly passions. The grace that offers salvation is the same powerful grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Now, that's amazing grace. That's the real deal. So grace, real grace, empowers us to do the will of God and to become the will of God. In other words, we are so into it, the will of God is manifested in our life continually. So real grace doesn't excuse us from holy living, but rather teaches us to live holy. (laughs) All right, now whenever you hear that someone's teaching on grace or you see a book about grace, you wanna immediately be on your guard to see if that grace is more like an indulgence that gives you an excuse, a free hall pass, so you don't have to go to the class on obedience, or is it amazing grace that empowers you to do the will of God, all right? And stick with the amazing grace. Now, my fourth point, the fear of the Lord keeps us from sin. Here's a beautiful scripture that I just love. It's Jeremiah 32, 40 through 41. And God said, through Jeremiah, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they'll never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. In other words, God would plant you in blessings and never stop doing good to you. But you see, uh, When he's saying, I'll never stop doing good to them, then he says, I'll inspire them to fear me. Well, that's not a bad thing, that's a really good thing. That way they would never turn away from God. Now, this everlasting covenant is the new covenant in the blood of Christ. It's never gonna be replaced. And God will inspire your heart to fear him, which is a great blessing, because then you'll remain in him and you'll never turn away. But friend, I don't think that happens automatically. Many who were once in the New Covenant have turned away from him. The question is why? Well, they did not desire God to inspire their hearts with the fear of God. They didn't want that. They wanted heaven without having to fear God. They wanted a false Jesus that didn't require obedience. They wanted a God they could treat as a buddy, not one, one that would be a source of blessing, but, but a God who would not require anything. So in short, they wanted a God whom they did not have to fear in reverent awe. Now God says, I will inspire your hearts to fear me. That's a promise waiting for your acceptance. But you go without this if you don't want it because God isn't gonna force it on you, but it's yours in the new covenant and it contains tremendous blessings. You would never turn away from God if you say, okay God, inspire my heart to fear you so I never turn away from you." Now, the Bible says in Proverbs 16, 6, "'By the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil.'" And in Psalms nineteen nine, "'The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever.'" I recently read a book, I've read it twice, by John Bevere. It's a new book called The Awe of God, and he writes about a time when he was a speaker at a large Christian gathering in Brazil held in a large stadium. I suppose it was a soccer stadium. And so there was great singers and there was going to be this great program. People had come from all over, but they were all talking. There was no presence of God in the arena. And he was sitting on the platform wondering why he couldn't sense the presence of God because the best praise team in the nation was leading the praise. But as he wondered, where are you, God? Why, why don't I sense you here? The people were milling about, talking to each other, not entering in, not paying attention, and even after the music, someone stepped to the podium to read a scripture, but he, John could still hear the murmuring of the people as they continued to ignore what was going on and were just talking to each other. And God spoke to John Bevere and told him to address this problem. So when he went to the podium, he didn't speak for 60 seconds. And pretty soon the whole stadium got totally quiet. And then without introducing himself, he told them that if their president had come into the stadium, they would have given him respect. If a famous soccer player had been introduced, they would have been on the edge of their seats in rapt attention, but they were showing no awe or respect to God. Well, John preached on the fear of the Lord that night for 90 minutes. And then he asked those who hadn't been living in the fear of the Lord to stand. 75% of the audience stood. And suddenly the manifest presence of God filled the stadium and it came in like a wave. People were crying and repenting. And then there was a pause. And then a second wave came and they wept and cried and (laughs) and repented even more deeply. And then that lifted, and then God spoke to John and said, I'm coming a third time. And John repeated to the crowd, he said, I just heard the Lord say he's coming a third time. And then there came the sound of a mighty rushing wind that filled the stadium, and people could hear it blowing, but they couldn't feel it on their skin like a normal wind. And the sound man could hear it, but it wasn't registering on the gauges of his sound system, you see, because it was supernatural. It was the magnificent manifest presence of almighty God. And the featured soloist later said that she saw flames of fire falling from heaven. Now this rushing wind manifested for 90 seconds. And uh, even the unsaved uh, security guards from outside the stadium heard the wind blowing inside. It didn't blow outside the stadium, it was only inside. And they ran inside and uh, they all encountered God. Well, when that lifted after 90 seconds, people had fallen all over under God's power. Some of them fell backwards, some of them fell forwards, slumped over the chairs in front of them. And while that was going on, that manifestation with that supernatural wind, John said he felt that if he said one wrong word, he'd be a dead man, (laughs) because they were, they were like in the awesome, holy, manifest presence of God. But afterwards, he was in a car uh, going back to the hotel, and the lead soloist for that big meeting was also in the car, and she said, "I feel so clean." And he remembered the verse: "The fear of the Lord is clean." Enduring forever. Well, we should ponder that because I think most Christians like the idea of God's glory manifesting in our church services. But if we don't revere God and treat Him as holy or glorify Him as God, if we don't respect Him, if we're not reverence Him, His presence probably won't manifest. And if it did, we'd we'd be in trouble. (laughs) Now, John told of meeting a man who said to him, and John had been preaching at this meeting, and, and a, a, a different meeting than the one I just told about, but this man said, I keep sleeping with women, and then I stop for a while, but I don't believe celibacy is possible, so I go back to sleeping with women. But that's not my main question. What I want to know is why God isn't blessing my business. Now, John said, that's, that's what it looks like when there's a Christian who doesn't fear God. The fear of the Lord is enduring forever. And once, one time God said, you know, if you fear the Lord, you'll endure before me forever. But Satan, Lucifer, once led all the praise of heaven, was right there uh, as a guardian cherub of God's throne. But he didn't fear God and he didn't endure forever. And there's all kinds of Bible examples of that. So the fear of the Lord is clean enduring forever. Now, without the fear of the Lord, Christians live lifestyles that are not much different than the unsaved. And then when the unsaved see Christians living no differently than they do, then they have no reason to fear God. And then all of society unravels. And that's what's happening in our nation right now. Society is just literally coming undone. I believe that God is going to bring a massive national revival, a revealing of his glory that will involve a return of the fear of the Lord and an abandonment of the phony false grace and the fictitious Jesus who doesn't require obedience. Now, in such an environment of glory, willful sin will be judged immediately. Remember when there was such a revival in the book of Acts, And there was all kinds of miracles happening, and God was just manifesting his presence. But two people, a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira, sold a parcel of land and then pretended to give the full amount of money to the apostles. Why would anybody pretend? Well, evidently, they wanted the praise of men. They wanted to be regarded as uh, as the biggest givers in the church. And they fell dead right there by the judgment of God. And then the Bible says great fear came upon the church. And then what follows next is it tells what what that did when great fear this great fear of God came on the church that's when the healing revival moved out into the street and people were coming from all over the region bringing the sick laying them in the street hoping that Peter's shadow would fall on them and they were all getting healed and the Lord was adding to the church daily. Of those who are being saved. And it was just a marvelous revival. Now my fifth point is, uh, society unravels without the fear of the Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godly, uh, ungodliness and wickedness of the people, who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now listen to this key verse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, since just as they did not think it worthwhile to even retain the knowledge of God... God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would do what ought not to be done. They became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Malice is the desire to hurt somebody back. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous degree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only uh, do those things, but they approve of those who practice them. Now, that's Romans chapter 1. And what Paul is describing sounds very contemporary because he's, describing the unraveling of society, and it unravels just for one cause, and it starts with one root problem. The people didn't glorify God as God. Now, that means they didn't fear God as their creator, lawgiver, and eternal judge, because that's that would be honoring God as God. Well, they, for a while, they admitted God existed, but they didn't glorify him as God and the farther away they got from God the more they believed finally that God didn't even exist they didn't think it even worthwhile to even think of God anymore now then all these other problems manifest in society and that's where we are in this nation now if there's one root problem then there's one root solution and that would be to have a revival Of the fear of the Lord, America, all of America's problems have uh, say that you believe there's a great double standard of justice. Uh, Most people are aware that that's going on. Well, that that that's because there's no fear of God, (laughs) and when people are drug addicts, and uh, all the different problems whether it's injustice or immorality or theft or flash mobs or whatever it is, people shooting people, people killing people. You can always read a wife just killed her husband, that the society's becoming more and more violent. Well, that's because people don't fear God. But that means there's one root solution, and that would be a return of the fear of the Lord. Well... A man named A.W. Tozier wrote this. He said, I do pray often, O God, send a revival of repentance and the fear of God that will sweep through the continent that we may be spared and that we may honor Thee. That's a great prayer. Let's join in that prayer and pray that the fear of the Lord will be restored in our own lives, our families, our churches, and then demonstrated to society so that the church is really the salt and the light that Jesus said we would be. My sixth point is that the fear of the Lord brings the manifestation of the supernatural into the church. Now most churches that you go to are just dead Uh, There's no manifestation of God's presence. There's no power. You might hear a Bible story about power that was once upon a time, but you'll very rarely see anybody set free from addictions or demons cast out or anybody healed. There are services where that happens. There are churches where that happens. That happens in my meetings, for instance. But in general, if you were to go to the churches around America, and you were looking for God, well, you'd have to really get a leading from God to find a good church. They're rare, all right? Now the reason there's very little power in the American church is because there's no fear of God for the most part, and that's a generality, okay? Chris Reed is the president of Morningstar Ministries, and he is a real prophet. You can go to YouTube videos. You can watch him ministering in person. And after he preaches, God usually manifests supernatural knowledge and then supernatural healings and restoration to people. And one example was was, the Lord highlighted a married couple to him in the audience and uh, drew his attention to them. And then he heard in the Spirit the song, Christmas Don't Be Late by Alvin and the Chipmunks. (laughs) And he told the couple, he said, I'm hearing the song by Alvin and the Chipmunks, Oh Christmas Don't Be Late. And he said to the people, Does that mean anything special to you? And the man says, Well, my name is Alvin. And then the Holy Spirit revealed to Chris that Alvin's wife had a neurological brain problem, and he told her by the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ that Christmas was coming early for her because God was healing her brain. Now, two weeks later, that couple contacted him with a testimony. It turns out the woman did have a neurological brain condition she had not been able to read for 25 years but her early Christmas gift from God healed her brain and she could read again. Now you can watch stuff like that on YouTube. Uh, Chris Reed is the guy's name. Now he put out a new book called The Seven Spirits of God. I'm reading that book right now, but he relates, that one day he was caught up in the spirit into heaven where he met an angel named the fear of the Lord. And this angel took him into a huge heavenly library and into a section that was marked supernatural. And in that section, everything was about the supernatural. So he was drawn to the book that was labeled The Seven Spirits of God. And on the cover was labeled The Spirit of the Lord. Then when you open the cover, the next page was very thick, like a book in itself. And it was pure white, as thick as a book, and it was labeled The Spirit of Wisdom. And he turned that page, and there was another page, also very thick and white, and it was labeled the spirit of understanding. He turned the page, the next one was likewise thick and just labeled uh, the spirit of counsel. Turned the page, the next one was the spirit of might or the spirit of power. Turned the page, and the next one was the spirit of knowledge, and then the back cover of the book was the spirit of the fear of the Lord, so seven altogether? As he held the book, he was overcome by all the colors, lights, and euphoric feelings of joy and peace and reverence and awe. And he looked up from the book for a brief moment, and when he looked back at the book, the lettering on the back page had been ripped off and was lying on top of the five pages and the cover. And since the back no longer had a label, He ripped off the back cover, and when he did, the five pages fell out on the floor, and he was left holding the front cover in his left hand and the back cover that was blank in his right hand, and the angel asked him if he understood what was being revealed to him. And the angel said, when the fear of the Lord is taken away from the church, the supernatural acts of the Holy Spirit are lost as well. The pages fall out. And the angel said, Notice that what you were holding in your left hand was the front cover which read, The Spirit of the Lord. When the fear of the Lord is taken out, the supernatural elements of the Holy Spirit are lost. All you were left holding was the atmosphere or presence of the Lord. And Chris knew that he had been in many church services where there was a, uh, that believers felt a general presence of God. There was some little aspect of God there, but they left with their sicknesses, they left with their questions unanswered, they left with their addictions because there was no fear of the Lord, there was no manifestation of all the supernatural power. Our society is being completely and insanely corrupted. In the state of Washington, I was told by people that have their kids in the schools up there that kids can come to school dressed up in animal costumes, and they are called fuzzies. And if you are a fuzzy, then you can use any bathroom you like because you're identifying that you're an animal. (laughs) No kidding. And Washington state has passed a law signed by the governor that allows the state to take children, young children, away from parents who are not affirming their gender choice and then hide those children completely from the parents so the parents can't even contact them. And then the kids are allowed to have gender-affirming, life-altering surgeries. Friend, that's not just wicked. That's insane. Now, the church cannot be the fullness of salt and light to society without the supernatural being manifested. So if God is going to bring a revival and empower the church gloriously, even in a time of gross darkness, see Isaiah 60 says, Arise and shine for your light has come. Uh, Gross darkness covers the people, but the glory of the Lord rises on you. So that's what I'm saying. If God is going to bring a revival and empower the church gloriously, even in a time of gross darkness, then there must come a revival of the fear of the Lord that will enable the fullness of the Holy Spirit to be manifested in supernatural ways. Now, my seventh point is the gospel of Christ includes a warning of coming judgment. And Paul wrote about a judgment day. He said, when according to my gospel god judges the secrets of men by jesus christ in other words the judgment where jesus has all people stand before him and uh, judges each one that's part of the gospel of christ and when paul preached to the uh, at the areopagus in athens he was addressing a crowd of sinners and idolaters and here's what his gospel sounded like he said the times of Ignorance, God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So He was preaching the resurrection of Christ, but He was saying, that God is commanding people to repent because a judgment day is fixed and Jesus Christ is the judge. See, that's part of his message. Paul wrote to the Romans, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God, Romans 14. And to the Corinthians church, he wrote, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Now that's the NIV. The King James uh, translation says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Believers in Christ make little effort to persuade others when they do not know what it is to fear the Lord. See, Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing what it is to fear the Lord, we persuade men. But if we don't know what it means to fear the Lord, we don't persuade men. And that's probably the the main reason of all that most Christians don't witness and refuse to witness. I remember when I was a senior in high school, and our six A-Squad cheerleaders got killed on one day in a fiery plane crash. I had not shared my faith for the five years that I'd been a born-again Christian. But i tell you what, I repented and cried and wept. And from then on, even though I had a lot of insecurities and a lot of problems, I started witnessing, sharing my faith, and, and in two and a half months, led 12 other students to Christ my, my senior year there. But that, that uh, fear of the Lord came upon me. I, I, I sensed his really displeasure at that we had never shared our faith with those girls and, and it was too late. Whether they went to heaven or not, I do not know. But I know that I'd never shared my faith. So again, Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord or the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, when Paul testified before the Roman governor Felix, He didn't merely present Christ as a benevolent, kind shepherd that would give us many benefits. The Bible says this, as Paul talked about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. When Peter preached to the Gentiles at the house of Cornelius, he said about Jesus, but God raised him, from, uh, raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, see, he commanded us to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. You don't hear that very often in Christian churches. (laughs) That's part of the gospel, and that brings the fear of God. Now, preaching that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead and that every person will give an account to him is a major part of the gospel of Christ, And this is what God commands us to preach, as Peter said. And then Paul said, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. men." Paul also wrote, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.16 Because Paul knew the fear of the Lord, he tried to persuade men for their sake, but he also preached the gospel for his own sake to avoid displeasing the Lord to whom he would have to give an account. Now, We often talk in our circles that we're full gospel, and a full gospel church uh, means by that that they preach forgiveness and salvation and physical healing and the baptism of the Holy Spirit for empowerment. And then we think we're full gospel, but you see, the gospel isn't really full unless we preach that Jesus has been appointed judge by the Father, and that everyone will give an account to him. And those who truly fear him now will be most blessed at the judgment. The lost will experience an eternal terror of utter horror and an everlasting fire. So I ask myself, how can I better persuade people that God is a God to be feared? You see, he's not an optional God. Many people think, you know, I'm I'm content, I don't need God. I don't need him as a crutch. I don't need him as a warm fuzzy. I'm prosperous. I'm happy. I like doing my own thing. But to those people, we say you do need God because every thought of your mind, every word of your mouth, every motive of your heart and every deed you do, whether good or bad is being recorded. And you're going to give an account to the Lord of glory in person. And right now you can receive forgiveness for your sins, but if you neglect that and you appear before him as one who has rejected him, then they're gonna search for your name in the Lamb's book of life and it's not gonna be found. And the Bible says if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's Revelations 20, and the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels, not for people. But if you wanna serve the devil and reject Jesus, you'll end up sharing the fate of the devil. Now, here's my conclusion. I believe God is bringing a revival of the fear of the Lord to his church. And uh, there's gonna be a lot of repenting of sin. (laughs) And then this renewal is gonna bring a supernatural power back to the church for a great end time worldwide revival where we preach the full gospel that invites people to receive forgiveness of sins but warns them that God has set a day where he'll judge the world by one man and he's given proof of that by raising him from the dead. Now, that's the full gospel. And it'll be demonstrated in the power of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> with the supernatural <clears throat> displayed in what Jesus called the greater works. Because he said, you, that you believe in me, then you'll do the works that I did. And greater works than these shall you do. Well, friend, that's a lot to think about. I hope that all of you will have a reverent fear of God run to him don't run away from him if you run to him he'll give you he'll give you forgiveness and then he'll make you clean and then he'll give you power to live like jesus and then you know what you'll share in the delight of jesus and it was said about him his delight is in the fear of the lord i love you god bless you if you would like to partner with us at Encouragement Expert, please email us at pastorbacker at gmail.com. Or you can write P.O. Box 485 Crestwell, Oregon 97426.